We're beginning a new series. We're looking at chapters 2 through 4 of the book of Hebrews. And the chapters that highlight God's sympathy and sovereignty, I don't know that there are three more important, um, significant, upbuilding chapters in the Bible. So we're going to work our way through them over the course of the next 10 weeks. The Jewish Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews was written had been Christians for years, but the years had not been kind. The anticipated second coming of Christ, they felt it could happen any moment, had not materialized the early all-for-one and one-for-all days of early church life in Jerusalem had been eroded by famines and persecutions. Forced to leave Israel, these Jewish Christians settled in the Roman Empire, bereft of livelihood and bereft of neighborhood. Their decision to become Christians was now adversely impacting not only themselves, but their children. They were persona non grata. They were Jews who were not accepted by Gentiles, and they were Jewish Christians that were not accepted by Jews. Some of these individuals had had enough and were deserting Christ in order to return to the synagogue and the social and economic benefits that afforded. Those who were refusing to desert Christ are critical and resentful of those weak ones who are bailing out, and the Jewish Christian community is fracturing. They have a similar question that haunts their thoughts, whether they stay or whether they've gone, whether they're hanging in there or whether they've said enough is enough. We became children of God through faith in Christ. Why are we still suffering? Is God unaware? Or if he's aware, is it that he just doesn't care? Um, In addressing their disillusionment and division, the writer focuses their attention on the character of God. We don't know who wrote this letter. It might be Paul. And Paul didn't put his name to it in order that it might find circulation, because if he puts his name on it, it might be not allowed to be circulated. It might be Paul. sounds like him. It might be Apollos, we don't know. It might be Priscilla. She didn't put her name on it because a woman's name on it would cause it not to be circulated. We just don't know. Um, But what we do know is that the writer uh, attempts to deal with the disillusionment and the division by focusing on two things that are like two lenses in a pair of glasses. If you have a pair of glasses and one lens is broken, you just can't see things. It's just things, but things are fuzzy. Or if you're looking through a pair of binoculars, it's it's important to have two lenses. It's important to have two fields of vision. And the two fields of vision that we'll find in these chapters are God's sympathy and God's sovereignty. To have one without the other, sympathy without sovereignty, God is good, but he's not great. Sovereignty without sympathy, God is great, but he is not good. Sympathy and sovereignty, God is great and God is good. And and so the writer will highlight both of these aspects of the character of God. 
Um, we who understand being worn down by life will benefit from gazing at God's sympathy and God's sovereignty as these readers would have benefited as well. Um, in your worship folder, there's some verses. Um, he begins in this section of Hebrews that will begin in chapter 2, verse 10, writes, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What we find is that the focus in this place focuses on both God the Father and God the Son. And it's unique in that both are put side by side. Some places speak of God the Father, but you don't have God the Son. Some people talk, focus on God the Son, but not God the Father. We find ourselves looking at God the Father and God the Son and their similarity. Jesus is presented as the founder of salvation. The founder, it's almost like the pioneer of salvation. Think about those pioneers who settled these Dakotas, who opened the lands through dedication and sacrifice. During the winter, when the winds blow here, I imagine what it would have been like to be some of the first settlers, the pioneers to traverse these lands in the dead of winter without, it just would have been amazing. And that's what Jesus is. He is the pathfinder who cuts a path for other individuals to follow. The path that Jesus cuts will allow men and women to experience the glory of being parts of God's forever family. That's what he's doing. He's walking a path that will allow individuals, men and women like us, to walk behind him and to be sons and daughters of God as he is. Um, Jesus is presented as such, as the founder of salvation, but the one who brings many sons to glory in the context, that's not Jesus. That's the Father who is bringing many sons to glory. The plan to have many sons is the Father's plan. And there's no internal conflict here. There's no, he's stuck because he's just, but he's loving, or he's loving, but he's just. There's no conflict here. This is a divine being who actively and intentionally wants more kids he wants to have men and women with him eternally as members of his forever family. This is the intent and the heart desire of the Father executed through the Son. The Father is the one who makes the founder of salvation perfect. When it's talking about making the founder of salvation, again, the pioneer, that's Jesus. The Father makes the Son perfect. What does that mean? Jesus is human, but he's divine. In what way is Jesus imperfect? The word for perfect is a word used when a priest was fully equipped, when they had the requisite knowledge and skills to represent God before men and represent men before God, they were said to have been made perfect. So what the Father does, he equips the Son 
to be the pathfinder, the pioneer of salvation. And it indicates that doing so will require suffering. And we'll talk about that, but what I want us to see is that God the Father is the one who outfits God the Son to fulfill the Father's eternal paternal purposes. Before there was a world, before there was sin, before there was a garden, before there was Adam and Eve, there was God the Father choosing to create embodied spirit beings, understanding that his son would come to be the pathfinder, to be the trailblazer, to be the pioneer who would cut out a path that other men and women who followed would become sons and daughters of God as well. Why did he want to do that? Because this is what's in the heart of the Father. This is what's in the heart of the Father. And to this purpose, he equips the Son. Uh, The Father makes the foundation of their salvation perfect through suffering. It says, it is fitting that God do so. That leads us to ask a question. Why is it fitting? Why is it fitting that God makes the founder of salvation perfect through suffering? Does he like people to suffer? That's just God. That's what God does. When God does stuff, you know, and if he's going to equip you, you're going to hurt because he has to make you hurt. He has to see somebody bleed. Is that what it means for it to be fitting for God to make the founder of salvation perfect? Um, Does God enjoy making people suffer? But then why do those to and through whom he reaches into the world, why do they suffer? Why do these Jewish Christians suffer? Why does the Son of God suffer? If the Father wants kids, why not remove suffering? Why does that need to be a part of the picture? That's what they want to know. They're suffering. They've been suffering for 15 years, and they're asking why. And the writer is going to have some things to say. But first, let's understand what's happening here. These first Christians were Jews. The first Christians were Jews. And there's good news and bad news to them. Well, the good news is that they, like Jesus himself, were blazing a trail for others to follow. That's what God does with sons and daughters. He equips them to serve him. God is both father and king. He is a noble father. And he has purposes that extend beyond him and his 2.5 kids. A little family. He has individuals that he wants to reach through his sons and daughters. The good news is that these first Jewish Christians, they, like Jesus himself, were blazing a trail for others to follow. That's the good news. Sometimes when you're suffering, it helps to know that there's a purpose. Is this going anywhere? I mean, is there any reason that I should experience this or that? And so they're given a sense of purpose. That's the good news. The bad news is, the purpose is, that those for whom they blaze the trail will be Gentiles. That's like being in the South in the time of when there's no equal rights, 
for a black and a white who hate one another, for the black to have been put in a place that they're going to lay down their lives so whites could benefit, or whites lay down their lives so blacks could benefit. That's Gentiles and Jews, not always that antipathy, but they weren't buddies. And so what the purpose is for God the Father, he wants to, through his initial Jewish sons and daughters, to extend grace to Gentiles. And that's the bad news. God is sovereignly channeling grace to Gentiles through Jews. And the reason that he's doing this is because this is what he promised to do. God always keeps his covenant promises. We talk about this. Is there a difference between the first half of the Bible and the second? God seems to act a little bit differently. What is being revealed here, that his sovereignty might always be clear in the Bible, but we don't always see his sympathy. This place is in the Old Testament where his sympathy is seen. When he's looking at his sons and daughters, the firstborn, the Jews who were in Egypt, it indicates that he, and it says four things about him, that he saw them and he heard their oppression, that he was concerned and he came down. That's what he says through Moses. I see you. I hear you. I am concerned. I have come down, and I'm going to lead my sons and daughters out of Egypt into the promised land. That's the same picture we have here. God sending his son, a latter-day Moses, to lead other men and women on this planet from slavery into sonship as he did in the old, so he does in the new. Um, And what God, well, look what it says in Genesis 12. What did God say to Abraham? What he said is, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, again, I'm not sure how Abraham felt about going on a trip. Sometimes a trip is okay, but what Abraham is told I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your culture. I want you to leave your life. And this is what's going to happen. I will make of you a great nation. That's pretty good news. I will bless you and make your name great. Sounds good. So that you will be a blessing. There you go. I will bless those who bless you. Mm -hmm. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the families that you like or the families that you know, Abraham. All families on the earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham, as the father of Jews, what is happening through Jesus is the fulfillment of this. So, Jews then are tasked with the responsibility to be the foundation of the church to the Gentiles. There is a to and through facet to God's purposes. When God does something in and to someone, it is not for it just to stay in between them. It is a to and through. So God reveals himself to the Jews so that through the Jews he might reveal himself to the Gentiles. That's the way it works. It's to and through. That's what God's covenants are like. Those whom God calls at this juncture of salvation in history will be spiritual pioneers. Um, and as such, there is a summons that God gives them. When we 
try to reach people for Christ, we our appeals sound like this. Leave them and join us. Leave them and join us, whoever them is. Your drinking buddies or them, you know, the people that you shouldn't be associating with. Leave them and join us. Do you know what God is saying to his firstborn? Leave us and join them. Leave Jerusalem. Leave your neighborhood. Leave your livelihood. I'm going to use you to channel grace to the Gentiles. Grace has been described as unmerited favor, and it is. There's something you've got to add. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor that is channeled from us to them. To them. Not necessarily to the people we like. And at this point, to the people with whom there is not a great relationship. This is how God does things. The first tier of Jewish Christians have a very difficult task. They will be called to endure difficult lives and open to, in order to open the road of eternal life to Gentiles. And in order to channel salvation, suffering will be involved. Suffering's hard enough. Um, suffering for no reason, as we've said, is really difficult. They are suffering so that others can have an easier time. And this would comfort them a little bit in their suffering, knowing that there's a purpose. What it says in Hebrews 12, it says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Um, when we hear a, a passage like that about discipline, we naturally think about being made holy, being made joyful, moral. When God talks about discipline here, it doesn't seem to be focusing at morality as much as usefulness to become someone to and through whom good news can be extended. And when you think about them who are on the outside, they don't feel close to God, they feel excluded. Then, if we are going to sympathize with them who feel excluded what are we going to need to experience? In order to sympathize with them, we have to feel excluded. We're going to go through things that feel difficult. Why? Is God punishing us? No, he's equipping us so that we can understand how they feel, so that we, in coming alongside, can understand feeling like a spiritual outsider who questions and that's what the early Jewish Christians have to experience. Um, this is what discipline is all about, to, to become useful, to become useful. Again, I've talked about it, but in the, the 12 step book of AA, it, they really got this part right when they have in step six. It says, I'm willing you should have all of me, good and bad. I ask that you would remove from me 
every single defect of character which stands in the way of my, my usefulness to be somebody to and through whom grace is flowing. Where in your life are you suffering? You have what you don't want to have. You don't have what you do want to have. You feel what you don't want to feel. You don't feel what you do want to feel. You do things you don't want to do and you don't things, don't do things you do want to do. Why? Why is that? Um, you say, I can't see a reason. I don't see a reason why I should be going through this. It's not making me happy or joyful. We don't always know what makes us useful. That's what I like about the step six prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous. What it ends up saying is, I'm willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. We have a tendency to give our stuff to God as if we're sorting laundry. You know, there's lights and darks. You know, there's good things and there's bad things. And so for some of us, we throw a bunch of stuff in the light basket and say, here you go, God, <laughs> look what you got. This isn't, this isn't bad, so I'm sure you can use this. So, yeah, I use the, here's the lights, here's what I do. And we kind of keep the darks. You know, so you don't need to look at these. Some of us are the other way. We give God the darks and we keep the lights. And we want God to, to fix all the things that are bad or to use all the things that are good. What the steps, this prayer, and it gets it right, you don't separate the lights and the darks because only God knows. Only God knows what leads to usefulness. Only He knows. God is the one who determines what usefulness looks like and does not look like. We can't always see why we're going through what we're going through. And we say, didn't I, am I not overcoming my anger problem? Do you need to keep doing this? I mean, haven't you punished me enough? Am I not trying? I'm really doing better. We assume that it's all about us, but it's not really about that. It's about what God is doing to and through you. In terms of the things that are going on in your life, it's not just about you. It's about what he's going to do through you. And in order for you to be his mouthpiece, to be able to reach out with his hands, hands that end up being used, end up being scarred. That's not great news, but there is purpose for our suffering. Um, when we look at all this, why would he do this? This is God the Father who is in charge of family planning. He is the one leading many sons to glory. He is the one who wants many sons. He is the one who sets apart sons and daughters for divine service, and that brings us to the idea of divine sympathy. Look what it says. It says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Uh, the images of Jesus enduring a difficult trip in order to connect with brothers and sisters. What would you do for a brother or a sister? Where have you traveled to try to help them? What have you done to try to come alongside them? Why did you do that? Because they're brothers and sisters. Do you know why Jesus came? Do you know why Jesus came? Not just in order to make you a brother and a sister. He already saw you that way. He already saw you that way. Why did he see you that way? Because he saw it in the eyes of the Father. God didn't want to be your father on this side of the cross. He wanted to be your father on the front side of the cross. That's why he created the cross. Not to get over his hate, but in order to satisfy his love. He has been eternally paternal. That's what the character of the father is like. And because he sees individuals that way. He commissioned his son to blaze a path so that other sons and daughters might follow him. Why? Because God wants to be your father eternally. There is a story, this quite little movie, it was one of those things I was reading. They used to have these place in the Argus Leader where they'd rate movies that had just come out on video. And at that point, it wasn't everything wasn't Redbox. I mean, there's other places you could go get CDs. Anyways, shut up, Mike. Don't, don't okay. But I remember I remember seeing this movie, this Straight Story, and it was about the. It was a story about Alvin Strait. How many of you saw that movie? That's what I thought. <laughs> So one cute story, wasn't it? Yeah. It was about Alvin Strait, who is a World War II veteran, whose brother Lyle had a stroke, and he lives in Wisconsin, 240 miles away. And Alvin Strait has bad legs, and he can't drive a car, and he's too proud to accept charity. So what he does, he jumps on a John Deere. And he pulls a wagon, and he makes his way at five miles per hour from Lawrence, Iowa, to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. And it takes him six weeks. And this is a true story, true story, Alvin Strait. And so when he gets there, and we're going to see a clip from the end of the movie, the Strait story, it's, when he arrives. There's a tenderness in this passage that might not be immediately obvious. 
Jesus making a very long trip in order to connect with brothers and sisters. What it says in the movie, uh, Alvin and Lyle had been estranged and really hadn't talked to one another for a very long time. And when he shows up on his doorstep, it's very significant that he does so. Um, Calling children of God brothers and sisters reflects the will of the Father. God the Father wants sons. The Father is the source of sympathy. The Father is the source of sympathy. The Father is the source of sympathy. The Son is the agent of sympathy. There's no conflict here. Both working together to accomplish eternally paternal purposes. Um, There are a couple of verses that are picked from the Old Testament by the writer to the Hebrews. Again, I think it might be Paul who writes this letter. It sounds, feels like Paul. Anyways, I don't know. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The three thing verses have two things in common. God seems to be hiding his face in these verses. Both of them speak about God hiding his face. God seems to be hiding his face, but appearances can be deceiving. It says, I will tell of your names to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I'm going to read this. Uh, It's in your worship folder. Read part of it. The first line of this song, in fact, that's what these psalms are. They are Jewish songs, Jewish songs. And the first line of this song will be familiar to us. It was familiar to Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. It seemed that Jesus is expressing abandonment. He's saying, why did you go away? And the thing that we don't always understand, that this is the first line of a Jewish song. If you grew up in the age that I grew up in, Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again, because a vision softly creeping. And you know it sounds of silence. Simon and Garfunkel, Simon and who? But when we think of Hello, darkness, my old friend, we don't just think of the first line of that song. We think of the song. Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not expressing a sentiment. He's singing the first line of a song. And the song starts on a minor key, but it ends on a major key. The song that he thinks touches his suffering. It is the perfect song. And as he lies as he is stretched out on the cross. God the Father attends to his son and puts in his mind a song, the perfect song, and inserts it there. Because this song will give him strength. It will help him feel the things he needs to feel, and it will help him get through. And Jesus says the first line of it, My God, my God, why is thou forsaken? But look at where this song goes. And we're not going to do all of it, but let's at least get enough of a flavor. And you'll hear things that sound so much like crucifixion that they must have been written with Jesus in mind. 
and given to Jesus by the Father. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. goes on, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written six to seven hundred years before Jesus died, and it perfectly captures the experience that he has. I just can't imagine what that would have been like for this, these words to come into his mind. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. These songs going through his head. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Here's the line that is quoted in Hebrews. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He understands why he's there. And he understands that if he experiences what he experiences, he's a trailblazer and a pioneer. And not only does he get to come to the Father, but we get to come along behind him. And he can look back at those who are following and think about what he went through. And he says, okay, that's just like my father to create ways that other people will enjoy his fatherness as much as Jesus has enjoyed it. I goes on. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, My God, my God, why has you forsaken me? It's the first line of a song. But when the song ends, it's not a minor key. I know that you don't. I know that you see me. And that's what's going through his head. It's not, God, you've forsaken me. It's you haven't. Because that's where the song ends. Not Jesus being abandoned by the Father. It's the first line of a Jewish song. It says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's from Isaiah 8. God seems to be hiding his face in Psalm 22. In Isaiah 8, he is hiding his face. Look what it says. Bind up the testimony, Isaiah writes. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'll put my hope in him. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. God hiding his face from Israel. In the context, what's happening, God's going to say to his firstborn, this is going to become very rough for you. I'm going to allow one nation and then another nation to come in and absolutely desolate you. And it's going to, I will be hiding my face from you. And you will feel exposed and vulnerable and abandoned. And that's exactly what happened. There is some sympathy in the Old Testament, but when it ends, God's firstborn has been 
laid waste. Why would God do that? Because of what he promised Abraham. I will reach out to every nation on the earth through you. But Jesus said, if a seed remains alone, it remains a single seed. But if the seed goes into the ground, what happens when a seed goes into the ground? One seed, one seed goes into the ground. What happens to that seed? The outside of it decays and a tree is born and comes up out of the ground. And how many seeds do you have? Hard to even count, isn't it? Every piece of fruit has a number of seeds. Do you know what the seed that went into the ground is? You know the answer, don't you? God's firstborn. They could have just remained the only sons and daughters of God. But if they go into the ground and die, just like Jesus did, this tree comes up, and guess who ends up getting to be part of his forever family? There's individuals who believe that God has turned his thoughts against the Jews forever. Not a chance. God does not accept a son and then banish him. There's coming a time, I told you, when God, the time of the Gentiles will be over. God will put up a stop sign, and then he will wave in his firstborn. And you know what he's going to say? Well done. Well done. You went into the ground, but now look it over on this side. Look at what I did through your suffering. You didn't suffer for nothing. All these individuals are in the church, and maybe we're going to seek out our brothers our firstborn older brothers, and you know what we might have the chance to say? Jeez, thanks. All that you experienced so I could be here, and now we get to be here together. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to look at our father, and we're going to go, I can't imagine how you could come up with a plan like this, and we'll know details at that point, but we we will do this, practice it. That I just can't even touch the wisdom of that plan. I can't see any flaws in it. It just makes me want to be here. I get to be with you. I get to be with somebody who thinks like that. I get to be the son or daughter of a father like it. And how long did you say this was going to last? Forever? Eternally? It's never going to go away? I'm going to get to be with Jesus. I'm going to be, get to be with my older... I, I think if a verse ends up um, fitting, we've heard it before. And, I, and maybe we've not known how to apply it. I think it was written for these, and we can benefit from it, but I think it was written for first century, first century Jewish Christians. That's what it says, and it's, I wrote it into 4.1, but it's really on belongs here. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's be 
Jews and Gentiles again. I think he's talking to the first century Jewish Christians. Again, this verse is for everyone because it talks about rewards. You know what's going to happen to you folks if you're first century Jewish Christians? You get to be channels of grace for them. You know what's going to happen to you? You're not going to have your best life now. And your family's going to suffer. And it's not going to be nice. And you're not going to have good jobs. And Jesus isn't going to come back right away. And you know what? You're going to have to look and understand, God, I believe you exist. And I believe that you're a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you think and do you imagine that God will have a reward for his first century Jewish Christian sons and daughters? you imagine that? You know what some of the reward's going to be? The father's going to talk to his friend. I don't know how all this works. You're going to be there. Let's say you're Jews. And what the father might do is say, I want you to look over at them. These are Gentile brothers and sisters. Go and look at these ones. Well done. And every time you see them, you're going to say, you know what? It was worth it. I don't want to go through that life again. Boy, I'm glad that life is over because now seeing that they are eternally involved, that's what the Jews are going to feel like. They are going to understand that they are not, they are, haven't been cast away. They are those to and through whom salvation has come to the world. But for now, they feel like outsiders. That will not be the case forever. It will not be. God. Um, Devin, come on up. We're going to keep on working our way through this. This portion of Scripture is very, very touching, very deep. If we look at the sympathy and sovereignty of the Father and the Son. Father, thank you for um, your character, your sympathy, and your sovereignty. You really are good and great. Your purposes are noble and good and kind. They lead through difficult places, but they end in mercy. And we're going to have the chance to be able to learn that a thousand years from now, in 2005 and 10, and on and on and on and on and on. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.